Genesis 48, 8 through 20. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim to his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh to his left hand, towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it to, from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed him that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. The word of the Lord. Well, we're uh, continuing our series on the book of Genesis, and this week we're f- um, finishing the story of Jacob. You may have noticed that we had to jump all the way to the end of Genesis to do this. Um, we'll go back next week to chapter 37 to pick up the life of Joseph. But this week we're looking at the last episode in the life of Jacob. And you may have noticed something as Joel was reading the passage. This is not an exciting story. You know, Joseph is blessing his grandkids. I mean, Jacob blessing his grandkids. There's nowhere near the the drama or the tension or the excitement that we've seen in some of the other stories about Jacob. So why are we looking at this story In Hebrews chapter 11, the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, there's a famous chapter. It's chapter 11. It it has a list of all these famous uh, biblical characters who exhibited faith. And uh, it's kind of like a hall of fame. Sometimes they even call it the hall of faith. Uh, All these famous stories, so to say, uh, by faith, Noah built the ark. Or by faith, Moses led the Israelites across the Red Sea. 
hugely famous stories. Um, but when it talks about Jacob's story, it doesn't mention any of the stuff we've been looking at. It doesn't say, by faith, Jacob saw the stairway to heaven, or by faith, Jacob wrestled with God. It doesn't talk about any of that stuff. It talks about this. It says, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. That's the thing he's remembered for? That's the great example of faith in Jacob's life? Why? Have you ever wondered what it would be like to interview somebody from the past? So, like, if you could interview Jacob and you could ask him, hey, Jacob, tell me what you learned when you saw that stairway to heaven. Tell me what you learned when you wrestled with God. You know what Jacob would say? He'd point to this story and he'd say, it's all about grace. That's what I learned. And especially what we could call the strange logic of grace. Because grace will utterly transform your life, but it always does so in a way that is so counterintuitive, so confounding, and oftentimes so infuriating that there's no way to just stay neutral to it. The grace of God always demands a response. There's no such thing as a neutral reaction to the grace of God. So Jacob's life teaches us that if you embrace this grace in your life, it transforms your life because it transforms the way you see everything. It's kind of like a new pair of glasses. It transforms the way you see God, the way you see the world, the way you see your life, everything. So let's see what this story has to show us about uh, this strange logic of God's grace. And specifically, we're going to see that the grace of God transforms us in three ways. It transforms us culturally, personally, and sacrificially, okay? The grace of God transforms us culturally, personally, and sacrificially, all right? First, God's grace transforms us culturally. You know, um, here's Jacob. He's at the end of his life, and his son Joseph brings Jacob's grandsons to him in order for Jacob to bless them. Now, back at the beginning of Jacob's story, if you were with us, we saw that this deathbed blessing of the patriarch was a really big deal. It's a big part of Jacob's story. It's a big part of the Bible. Now, we don't normally think of it like that. When we think of blessing, normally we think, you say, God bless someone. All we're doing is we're kind of just offering them a general wish for their well-being. But that's not what this is. If you, uh, if you remember the main storyline of Genesis, um, it, it's all about how God came to one man, Abraham, and he said, Abraham, I created the world to be a place of blessing, but now the world is under a curse. And through you, Abraham, through your family, I want to undo the curse and make the world a place of blessing again. Through your family, Abraham, through one of your descendants, I'm going to raise up a savior, a Messiah, and he's going to come. He's going to conquer all sin and evil and suffering and death for all time. I'm going to use your family, Abraham, to do this. It's all about God's promise to bring his power and his salvation into the world. That's the blessing. And in this passage, Jacob is representing God. He's representing the transition of this blessing into the world because it began with Abraham, and then it went to Isaac, and then it went to Jacob. And now Jacob is passing on the blessing of God to the next generation. That's what this is all about. So here comes Joseph with his boys to be blessed. Now, in the ancient world, they had something called primogeniture. We've talked about that. Primogeniture was where the firstborn son was favored above all the other siblings. So the firstborn son got all the wealth, all the attention, the love, the approval, and the blessing of the father. Um, the firstborn son was the favored son. 
And so here's Joseph. He brings his boys and he stage manages them so that Manasseh would be on the right hand of Jacob because Manasseh was the firstborn and the right hand was supposed to contain the bigger blessing. So Joseph wants his firstborn son Manasseh to get the blessing from the right hand of Jacob. But Jacob crosses his hands. And he puts his right hand on the younger son, Ephraim. Now, and Joseph thinks he's made a mistake. So in verse 18, he says, Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. Now, the story makes a point, actually, of highlighting the fact that it says Jacob's eyes were dim with age. Jacob was going blind. So Joseph is thinking, well, my poor old dad doesn't see very well. I'm just going to help him out here a little bit. Not this way, Father. Do it like this. But what does Jacob do? In verse 19, it says, but, but his father, that's Jacob, he refused and said, I know, my son, I know. In other words, Jacob is saying, son, I know you're just trying to help out your poor old dad here, but I actually know what I'm doing. It's a very subtle but powerful way of saying that even though Jacob is blind, he actually sees reality far more clearly than Joseph does. Jacob sees things through the lens of grace. Because that culture would have looked at the world and it would have said, God's power, God's salvation, God's blessing, all of that comes into the world through the strong, through the powerful, through the rich, through the beautiful. That's how God's blessing comes into the world. He always uses the strong ones, the powerful ones. Grace, on the other hand, this strange logic of grace says, no, God's power and blessing comes into the world through the ones the world would reject. God chooses the weak and the powerless and, and the oppressed and the marginalized. God doesn't use the insiders. God's always working through the outsiders. And you see that pattern, that strange logic of grace, all the way through the Bible. It's one of the, it's one of the big themes in the book of Genesis, actually. God chooses old barren Sarah to be the bearer of this messianic seed. He chooses ordinary Leah, not beautiful Rachel. He chooses the secondborn or even the fourthborn son instead of the firstborn son. You see this all the way through the Bible. God is always giving his preference. He's always working through people that the world would see as outsiders. So in 2 Kings chapter 5, who brings the message of salvation to the powerful Syrian general Naaman? It's a little slave girl a social outsider, or uh, the prophet Jeremiah when they threw him into a pit. Who was the one that rescued Jeremiah out of the pit? And later on in the story, he actually gets a special commendation from God. It was an Ethiopian eunuch. That is a sexually altered person of color. That's who God was using in his story here. Now, if you look at the story of Jesus, all the ministry of Jesus, you see the same thing in Jesus's life. Jesus was constantly showing a preference for working with, with people that the world would say were outsiders, social outsiders, sexual outsiders, racial outsiders, religious outsiders, even, and this is important, even moral outsiders. He was constantly being criticized because he was hanging out with tax collectors. You know what a tax collector was? In those days, a tax collector was a financial predator. Tax collectors preyed upon the poor and cozied up to the government. That's who Matthew was. Matthew wrote one of the Gospels, but Jesus chose him. You see, what does all of this mean? Let me bring this into our culture, into our world. Um, because we 
don't necessarily practice primogeniture in our culture in the sense that we don't favor the firstborn or, or birth order in our culture, but we still practice primogeniture because what is primogeniture? It's a form of social favoritism. And that means that every culture practices some form of primogeniture because every culture practices some form of social favoritism. So in our culture, we still give tremendous preference to the strong, the powerful, the rich, the beautiful. In fact, we've expanded the list in our culture. The young, the thin, coming from the right neighborhood, having the right color skin. Those are the ones that are favored in our culture. Every culture practices primogeniture because every culture practices some form of favoritism. Every culture has a list of people. Some of them are in and some of them are out. And it might change from culture to culture, you know, the qualities that are on that list. So, for instance, you know, in the ancient world, being too thin was not a good thing. It was seen as a sign of poverty. Can you imagine a culture in which it's not good to be too skinny? But that's what it was like in that culture. So it's not about the certain qualities. It's not about being black or white or rich or poor or young or old or thin or fat. Grace doesn't reject the specific qualities, so you'll notice, by the way, in the passage that God's not rejecting Manasseh, the firstborn, just because he's a firstborn. In fact, um, Jacob says to Joseph, don't worry, Joseph, uh, Manasseh is going to be a people. He's going to be great. God is not rejecting Manasseh. Grace does not reject the qualities themselves. Grace rejects the pride and the favoritism and the snobbishness that attaches moral virtues to the qualities and then excludes anyone who doesn't possess those qualities. So let me give you an example. In our culture, we have much higher regard for the poor and the oppressed than any previous culture, and that's a good thing. We have this incredibly evolved social consciousness in our culture, but first of all, do you realize that we only value these things because, because it comes from the Bible? There are an increasing number of philosophers and social critics who are constantly pointing out now, and they're not Christians, but they're pointing out that the reason we have this social consciousness in our culture is because of the impact of 2,000 years of Christianity on our culture. But secondly, and even more importantly, if you attach moral virtue to being socially enlightened, to being socially conscious, and then you exclude everybody else who's not as enlightened, not as conscious about social issues as you are, if you do that, then you've just excluded yourself from God's grace. Because God says, my grace comes to those who know that they need it. My grace comes to people who know they're not virtuous. My grace comes to people who are willing not just to welcome outsiders, but to be an outsider themselves. Are you willing to do that? For instance, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave a very famous list of people who are eligible for God's blessing. It's called the Beatitudes. Who's eligible for God's blessing? The very first thing on the list, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom. Now, we look at that, and it's very common for us to look at that and say, when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, we think he's talking about being humble. Because humility is a virtue. And we want to have something that will commend ourselves to God. We want to be virtuous. And so we think, oh, we want God to see us as being virtuous people. We're humble. That's what being poor in spirit means. That's not what it means. There was a word for humility that Jesus could have used. He didn't use it. He used the word for poverty. Friends, poverty can produce virtues. 
like humility. But in no world is poverty in in and of itself a virtue. Nobody wants to be poor. Ask poor people. Poverty is, is a state of utter deprivation that God wants to heal. And when Jesus says that you have to be poor in spirit, what he's saying is that you have to realize that spiritually speaking, you're in the gutter. That's what he's saying. In fact, one of my favorite paraphrases of the Beatitudes comes from a book called The Divine Conspiracy. It's by a, a man named Dallas Willard. Um, I remember when this book came out in the late 90s. It was, I was a pretty new Christian. It really had a huge impact on me. Dallas Willard gives his little paraphrase of the Beatitudes, and I love the way he puts it. Here's how he, how he says it. Blessed are the physically repulsive. Blessed are those who smell bad. The twisted, misshapen, deformed, the too big, too little, too loud, the bald, the fat, and the old, for they are all riotously celebrated in the party of Jesus. Then there are the seriously crushed ones, the flunkouts and dropouts and burnedouts, the broke and the broken, the drug heads and the divorced, the HIV positive and the herpes ridden the brain-damaged, the incurably ill, the barren, and the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time, the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the parents with children living on the street, the children with parents not dying in the, quote, rest home, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved or emotionally dead, even the moral disasters, Murderers and child molesters, the brutal and the bigoted, drug lords and pornographers, war criminals and sadists, terrorists, the perverted and the filthy and the filthy rich. Are you willing, are you able to find yourself on a list like that? Grace transforms you culturally because it it calls you not only to welcome outsiders, but to become an outsider yourself. And that's the first thing we see. But secondly, we see that grace transforms you personally. Let's come back to our story. When Jacob crossed his hands, not only was he crossing the culture, he was crossing Joseph. So you look at verses 17 and 18. It says, When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. So when Joseph saw what Jacob was doing, he was gobsmacked. He was utterly astounded. He was surprised. But he wasn't just surprised. He was furious. When it says he was displeased, literally that says it was evil in his eyes. He was furious at his father, so much so that he actually had the gall to take his hands and put them on the patriarch's hands, which was really disrespectful back then, and try to actually put Jacob's hands back on the, on the head of his firstborn boy. He was furious when he saw Jacob doing this. In other words, Joseph looks at Jacob, who represents God's will here, And he says, I don't like this. I don't understand this. I don't agree with this. I want you to stop this right now. And don't you know we do the same thing all the time? We're just like Joseph. Because we look at stuff in the Bible. We look at all the things the Bible says. We look at God's will as revealed in the Bible, and and there's stuff in there. We don't like it. We don't understand it. And so we reject it. And can we just be real? A lot of times it has to do with stuff the Bible says about sex, money, Power, 
You could probably throw in something about loving your enemies in there. That's, we hate that stuff. We hate what the Bible says about that. Why? Because we want to do what we want to do. When we want to do it, we want to do what we want to do with our bodies, our money, our social capital, all the time conveniently forgetting that all that stuff belongs to God anyway. And so we're like Joseph. We get angry. And we, we, we even have enough disrespect to try to put our hands on God's hands and say, not this way, my father. But look at Jacob here. The strange logic of grace has transformed not just the way he sees the world culturally, but the way he sees his own life personally. And that really comes out in his prayer of blessing over the boys. In verse 15, he's talking about God. He's looking back at his life and he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. So he's looking back over the course of his life and he's saying, God has been my shepherd the whole time, my whole life long. He's looking back at his life. Now, what was Joseph, I mean, Jacob's life like? Let's do a little recap. If you remember his story, uh, Jacob began his life in the shadow of his older brother. His father um, showed all the favoritism to the firstborn son Esau so that Jacob grew up with this deep inner emptiness. He was emotionally deprived from a boy. And then after that, he tried to steal the blessing from his brother and his brother wanted to kill him, so he had to run for his life. And he spent the next 20 years of his life in exile. So not only was he emotionally deprived, he was also relationally alienated. After that, he was deceived into marrying a woman that he didn't want to marry. And then when he did marry the woman that he did want to marry, she died within a few years of giving birth to their children. Oh, and while all of that was going on, he was being economically exploited by his uncle Laban. And then on top of that, at the end of his life, his sons sold their younger brother Joseph into slavery and then went to Jacob and told him that their son had been killed. And Jacob spent the last two decades of his life in grief and depression over the loss of a son that wasn't even dead. You look at his life and what do you see? He was emotionally deprived, relationally alienated. He was deceived, cheated, exploited, not once but twice bereaved of some of the dearest people in his family. And at at the very end of his life, you get to this passage, and what does he say? Does he say, God, how could you let that happen to me? God, what were you thinking? God, how could you possibly let something like that happen? No. He says, God has been my shepherd all my life long. This God has been my shepherd. Everything that happened to me was part of God's plan, and it was a good plan. What? How can he say that? Only because of the strange logic of grace. Grace means that God loves us, accepts us, blesses us, not on the basis of anything we've done, but only on the basis of what he's done through Jesus Christ. If you were saved and accepted and loved and blessed by God, if you were saved by what you do, that means that there would be a limit to what God could ask of you. You would have some negotiating power with God. So whether you're beginning to explore faith in Christ, or even if you've been a Christian for decades, if you say to God, God, I'm prepared to obey you. I'm a reasonable person. But, but first I want to understand. First I want to agree. Only if I understand. Only if I agree. Only if I like it. Only if it makes sense to me. Then I'll obey you. That is not obedience. That is not a relationship. That is a negotiation. You're like Joseph. God is crossing you. And you're putting your hands on his and saying, not this way, my father. 
A grace-based relationship with God means that you get into that relationship and you stay in that relationship, not on the basis of anything you do, but on the basis of what God has done for you. If you make your behavior, your actions, the basis of whether you get or stay in a relationship with God, that is not a grace-based relationship. The gospel says God brings you into relationship with himself, not on the basis of your behavior. He doesn't put any conditions on your behavior. Your actions, you don't perform your way in, you don't act your way in, there are no hoops that you got to jump through, you don't clean yourself up, dust yourself off, you don't polish yourself, polish your life up. There's nothing you have to do. There's no song and dance. There's nothing you have to do. God does not put any conditions on your behavior in order to get into a relationship with him. Now think about this. If God doesn't put any conditions on your behavior, in order to get into a relationship with him, why in the world would we put conditions on our behavior? I'm willing to do this, but I'm not willing to do that. The only reason is because we want to stay in control of our life. That's what we want. We don't want God to cross our will. Listen, if you don't have a God whom you're willing to let cross you personally, then you don't have a God who can transform you personally. Because that God, a God who never crosses you personally, can never challenge you, can never critique you, can never um, upset you, can never discipline you. The only thing a God like that can do is co-sign the life you already want to live. You know, social workers take children away from parents like that. Parents like that ruin their children. So that if anything upsets you, if anything goes the way you don't want it to go, then you end up bitter, angry, and frustrated your whole life. The only way God can transform you personally is if you're willing to take your hands off of God's hands, take your hands off of your life, and instead of saying like Joseph, not this way, my father, instead you say, thy will be done. How in the world are you going to do that? It leads to our last point. We've seen that grace transforms us culturally. It transforms us personally. But lastly, grace transforms us sacrificially. Because here's the big question. It's one thing to trust God with your life, you know, even in the midst of hardships or difficulties or trials, everybody goes through stuff like that. But what about when real evil comes into your life? What about when, when a real tragedy enters your life? How do you trust God at a time like that? Two things need to happen. And the first is this. You need to see that you need God's grace. That you need God's grace. When Jacob calls God his shepherd, that means that we human beings are sheep. Now, that is not an accidental metaphor. When I was living in New York, I went to Redeemer Church. Tim Keller was the pastor. Um, he's one of the most famous and influential preachers of our last generation. And I remember right after 9-11, he preached a series of sermons on Jacob's story. It, it had a huge impact on a lot of people's lives, including mine. I, I've never learned more about Jacob's story, story than I've learned from him. But he told a story about a minister that he knew. I think he was Scottish. And this minister used to be a shepherd. So he knew a lot about sheep. And he said that the thing you have to understand is that when God calls a human beings sheep, that is not a compliment. <laughs> God is not looking at us and saying, oh, look, they're so cute and fluffy. It's not a compliment. Sheep are some of the stupidest animals there are when, if they get lost, they don't just come looking for home. They'll just keep wandering lost. And if you do go find them, they won't call, um, come to you when you call them. The only way you can rescue a sheep, this shepherd um, 
pastor said, is, well, first you have to scare them, usually with a big dog, and then you have to knock them down on the ground, tie up their feet, and then throw them over your shoulder before you carry them home. That's how you rescue a sheep. Doesn't feel very loving to the sheep, does it? (laughs) When God calls us sheep, it's a way of saying that we are in deep, desperate need of grace. That none of us can rescue ourselves. And on top of that, that none of us are actually looking for God. We think we are. But what we're really looking for is someone to co-sign the life we want to live. That's what we're looking for. And so often, the only way God can rescue us is to knock us down, tie us up, throw us over his shoulder, which begs the question, do you ever feel like God is knocking you down? Maybe it's God's way of trying to get your attention and show you that you are in need of God's grace. That's the first thing we have to do, is we have to know that we need God's grace. But secondly, the only way we're going to trust God when life really goes hard for us is not just to see our need of God's grace, but to see God's provision of grace. Not just that we need it, but that God has actually provided it to us in Jesus Christ. It's really interesting. Right after Jacob calls God his shepherd, the very next thing he says is, he talks about the angel who delivered me from all evil. Now, most scholars and commentators, as I was studying this, they're almost unified in um, agreeing that almost certainly Jacob is pointing to that experience he had where he wrestled with God at midnight, and then the next day he was delivered from being killed by his brother Esau. That's, that's what he's talking about. So the interesting thing is that when Jacob talks about being delivered, the Hebrew word is goel, which means redeemer. A redeemer was a relative who rescued someone from slavery or debt by paying the price themselves. A redeemer was somebody who took the penalty upon themselves in order to rescue someone else. That's what a goel, a redeemer, was. And Jacob is saying, that's what God did for me. And friends, that is exactly what God has done for you and for me through Jesus Christ because Jesus was the true son of the Father. And he came to a garden called Gethsemane one night and he wrestled with God. Because God the Father said to Jesus, my son, the only way we can save these sheep is if you are knocked down, tied up, and not just thrown over someone's shoulder, but nailed to a cross in order to pay the price for the penalty that they could never pay for themselves in order for you to be their Goel, in order for you to be their Redeemer. Jesus wrestled with God's will in the garden because Jesus is the ultimate firstborn son. And the only way that you and I can experience the real blessing of God is is for God the Father to take his hand of blessing off of Jesus so that it could rest on us. God crossed his hands on Jesus. But unlike Joseph, Jesus didn't cry out in anger and say, not this way, my father. Instead, Jesus said, must it really be this way, my father? He cried out in agony And and the father said, I know, my son, I know. But nevertheless, you must pay the price in order that they can be rescued. And Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. Friends, when it feels like, like God is knocking you down in life, when God is crossing your will, remember that Jesus was crossed so you could be blessed. That the right hand of judgment fell on Jesus so that the hand of blessing could rest upon you. So that when it feels like God is knocking you down, you can remember that on the cross, Jesus was nailed down to a cross in order to bring you safely home. That's grace. 
so that when you see Jesus doing that for you, loving you sacrificially, redeeming you sacrificially, rescuing you sacrificially like that, when you see him doing that for you, you can know that's grace. We need someone to rescue us. We can't do it ourselves. Jesus did. That's grace. And when that grace comes into your life, it transforms everything about you because it transforms the way you see everything in your life. It transforms the way you see the world culturally so that when you look at the world, instead of dividing it up into a list of the insiders and the outsiders, all of a sudden now you see, I'm an outsider. All of us are outsiders because we all stand in desperate need of God's grace and therefore none of us have any basis for feeling superior to anyone else in the world. But when the grace of God comes into your life, it also transforms you personally so that so that when you look at your life, you no longer divide it up into, here's what I'm willing to do, here's what I'm not willing to do for God. Because you see that God has already done everything for you through Jesus. That when you look at Jesus on the cross, you know that, that, that there's nothing God can't ask of you now. That frees you from bitterness and resentment when things don't go your way. Frees you to be like Jacob at the end of his life, a life full of peace, and joy and contentment, even though he looks at a life full of suffering. Because Jacob looked at his life and he said, I, I, I took my hands off my life. I took my hands off God's hands. And I'm free from being upset and bitter and angry and resentful now when things don't go my way because I took my hands off my life because you trust God with your life. That frees you. And the only way you can live like that is if the grace of God transforms you sacrificially. So that when you see Jesus redeeming you on the cross, when you see that Jesus was crossed so you could be blessed, that transforms you. Transforms the way you see God, the way you see your life, the way you see your world, everything. Have you experienced that transformation? Have you been transformed by grace? You can. You will. Let it. Let's pray. Father, what an amazing story, an unexpected story, but as unexpected as your grace is to us. And so, Father, we pray even this morning that you would um, help us to take the strange logic of grace ever more deeply into our hearts and our lives and to let it transform us culturally and personally and sacrificially, Lord. Uh, make us vessels of that grace and that love and that blessing to the world around us, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.